0: The preaching of God's Word is in Psalm 51, and there at verse 9. As we deal with this psalm, we're in the midst of various aspects of salvation, some of which, of course, are very uh, parallel, one with another. We come across a theme that has already been before us in this psalm. As we look at verse 9, notice from this psalm of David, Psalm 51 in verse 9. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all mine iniquities. So before David is the awareness of his own sin. And he comes and realizes if ever his conscience should be uh, dealt with and if ever his uh, a crime against God should be dealt with it is God who must deal with it. And so you'll notice this In verse 1, that he's appealing to God for mercy. He says, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. And so he begins with mercy, and from that mercy he pleads with God for pardon. Now what's interesting is that David, who was well aware of the pardon of God, who has thus asked for pardon, cannot stop asking for it. But is brought up with a sensitive soul to seek that assurance that God who is holy and God who is gracious would pardon him his sin. And there's something there for us to glean. We live in a day wherein we risk developing something of a casual approach to sin and the confession of sin. You might think, well, yes, I've sinned. That's bad. That's wrong. But I've confessed my sins, so let's move on. And perhaps we have a posture of some biblical notion that becomes presumptuous. Well, God forgives sin, so all we have to do is say these words, and he forgives. And there is, of course, something of truth in this thought. It's God's word itself, which tells us that if any man sin, and we confess our sins, God is faithful to forgive us our sins. There's no little comfort For the one who confesses his sin, yet this ought to be a wonder that does not lessen the earnestness, but quickens the soul all the more earnestly to seek that pardon and from the assurance of that pardon to be made glad in the rejoicing of grace and in the greater watchfulness against all sin. In other words, as you see this in context It's not David, as it were, full of doubts and tripping over himself saying, well, I've asked pardon, but I'm not sure. Is God faithful? I'm going to ask again. But rather, such is the reality of his conscience testifying against him. And most importantly, God's word testifying against his sin. Such is his knowledge of the holiness of God, as well as the grace of God and the wonder of pardon by grace. That he's coming again again. Earnestly in the same psalm, asking for that pardon that would then lead him to rejoicing and watchfulness against sin. So you see, it's not a casual thing for the believer. It's not just a common thing that goes about in some sort of careless and thoughtless way by which we recite our words. This is something that we may find and discover in ourselves. We go through the morning, perhaps we have our time of meditation upon God's word. And from that, our minds are quickened and Lord willing, our souls are quickened and we thus engage in prayer. And doubtlessly along the way in prayer, we'll have some expression along the lines of, forgive me my sins. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And yet there's this temptation, perhaps not so conscious to us, just to bring that in as an ingredient to normal prayer that is just sort of part of the normal expressions of our soul. Well, though it it should be a normal expression, we see in the psalm, and in this verse in particular as well, that it is to be an earnest request. Notice the language when he says, Hide thy face from my sins. And there's an intimacy in that expression. God, I realize that my sins provoke you unto judgment. They come to you and they're calling, screaming out unto you, bring judgment upon this one. And yet he says, hide your face from it. Turn away from it. And he says further, blot out all mine iniquities. Not just this particular sin. Isn't it interesting? He's not just saying this sin that I've had with Bathsheba and against her husband and my lying. He's saying all of mine iniquities All of it stands before me and all of it calls unto you saying, judgment, judgment, justice must be satisfied. This language of blotting out is similar to that notion of a debt in a ledger being struck through and written off and saying it's no longer demanded. And so whereas my iniquities call unto you for judgment I come and what an appeal it is. Blot it out. He doesn't say, here, take payment for it. He simply goes to God and says, of your grace, blot out this sin. Both of these expressions, turn your face from and uh, blot out my iniquities, are expressions of pardon. David is seeking pardon for his sin. This is a Christian experience. It's something that is the common experience of Christians to come as believers having committed sin to God against whom they've sinned and say, pardon me. And think of how full God's word is of encouragements to come. And we might wonder in our casual indifference when that's our temptation, you know, who needs so many encouragements to seek pardon? And yet that's not maturity speaking, that is lack of experience speaking, because so soon as the conscience is gripped by the dread terror of having sinned against a holy God, the wonder of pardon is a thing that is overwhelming. The good news for the Christian convinced of his sin is that God is a God who freely pardons, receiving no payment, but rather freely blotting out All our iniquities. So consider two things this evening. Firstly, the problem of guilt, and secondly, the removal of guilt. It should be noted that when we speak of the pardon of sin, we're speaking of the pardon of the guilt of sin. We're not speaking of something like the removal of sin itself, because sin has been committed, but rather the guilt of it. Is being dealt with. So, what is the problem of guilt? Why is this an issue? And then, secondly, the removal of it. Now, notice in the problem of guilt what guilt is generally. We speak of guilt, it's more likely the case that we speak of a feeling. So, we speak of feeling guilty, and we speak of others who felt guilty, and there's propriety in that. But to be clear, we should realize what guilt is. Guilt, generally speaking, is the fact of having committed a wrong. It is the violating of a standard. And so, whereas it should induce a feeling, the feeling is something that flows from the fact. The feeling is our response to the fact that some standard has been ignored and violated. In other words, guilt is not a feeling. Guilt is a fact of wrongdoing. So when we speak of guilt, especially in our age, which loves to relegate all sort of factual things to feelings and say, well, I don't feel this way, or I shouldn't feel and you shouldn't feel this way. Don't make me feel this way. And so on. We start with the fact that guilt is not a feeling first and foremost, but a fact of wrongdoing. This is what David acknowledges when he says, for instance, there in verse 3, I acknowledge my transgressions. Isn't it interesting? He doesn't come and say, I acknowledge my feelings. He doesn't come and say, Look, here's my problem. I've got these feelings. He says, Here's my problem. I've transgressed your law. Now, he's not unemotional about it, but you'll notice that the first issue is the fact of his guilt against thee. The only have I sinned. And notice, and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. So, when we speak about the problem of guilt, it's important for us to see that what guilt is, is the fact of having done wrong. Now, this brings, of course, the question of what's the standard of right and wrong. And, of course, for the student of the Bible, there's a clear understanding that it, God is that standard. His revealed will is that standard. And so, when it is that one sins, John says that sin is lawlessness. It's looking at God's law and saying, That's not going to govern me. I've chosen differently. I've chosen what the culture says is right or wrong. I've chosen what makes sense in my understanding. I've chosen what my conscience is satisfied with, what my parents have taught me, my grandparents have taught me, what my spouse has taught me, what others have taught me. You can see, of course, that there is a complexity to the misunderstanding of standard because those who should be in agreement with the ultimate standard, parents, ministers, civil governments, are often contrary to it. And so those whose voices should be singing in harmony with the law of God and his revealed will promote this disharmony that takes place. And what happens then are men whose wills and hearts are inclined to evil start to listen to these secondary and tertiary authorities who have it all mixed up and say, therefore, I'm okay, I don't need to worry about these issues. The point is that guilt, true guilt, is an issue that comes to pass when we violate that standard of righteousness, which is God's revealed will, most notably his law. So biblically, guilt comes to pass when one violates God's standard of righteousness, which is his law. Notice, for instance, you see the idea in Romans in chapter 3, So, sin is evident. Paul's laboring this point. But then he comes and he testifies in Romans chapter 3 regarding the law. He says in verse 19, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. The law comes... The word of God generally and those commandments particularly come and it gives an objective, a clear testimony of what the standards are. You know, some people say, well, I don't know what's right or wrong. And there's such a confusion. So God takes away that problem and he gives to us the revelation of truth. And when it is that we stand either against God's law, transgressing it, or when we stand uh, 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 without conforming ourselves to his law, we stand then guilty, notice here's the issue, before God. This leads us to what the problem of guilt is. The problem facing us is that we stand guilty before God. This is clearly expressed by David in verses already quoted. It's what Paul is writing in Romans chapter 3. The law comes and one effect of it is that it crystallizes unto our understanding and when it is by God's grace, it crystallizes in our consciences that we stand guilty before none less than God. Now, it should be no little thing were we to stand guilty of some uh, before some lesser one. But the fact that it is, We stand guilty before God brings to pass the greatest problem facing men. Because this God against whom we've sinned and thus stand guilty before is a God who is most righteous, who deplores, detests, in fuller ways than we can express and consciously uh, take in. He hates sin, despising it. He's of such purity that he can't look upon it. Not even out of curiosities. They sort of wonder and say, you know, I wonder what that's like. But is fully uh, despising of sin. He loves righteousness. He delights in it. And this holy God against whom we've sinned is a God whose righteousness must be satisfied. Well, here's the problem. Whether one feels guilty or not, if one is guilty before God, they stand as it were at odds with the almighty judge of all the earth who will not waver a hair's breadth from the demand of judgment. David sees this and he acknowledges, as he already has, that God would be clear when he judges This is, of course, the problem of guilt for us because we have sinned and we stand guilty before the Lord. Now, this should lead to a feeling. I feel guilty. But think about what that would mean. I feel as one who has violated the righteous standard of God. What does that mean then? It's not just this nagging sort of eating away at our conscience that's nebulous and abstract and doesn't have really concrete ideas. It means that I sense that I stand under the just judgment of God. Now that's a problem. It's a problem for the unbeliever because he has no refuge from which to find help and safety. And he has the wrath of God's just judgment Weighing heavily upon him, bearing down upon him, saying, you know in your conscience what is testified by my word, that those who do wickedly must suffer divine judgment. You remember when Paul was on his way to Rome and their ship is shipwrecked and they land upon an island and he's getting firewood. And as he's grabbing it, a serpent latches on to his Hand And he shakes it off into the fire. And the natives there are looking because they say, surely this man is a murderer, some wicked man, because though he escaped vengeance in the sea by the storm, vengeance has pursued after him and is now going to take him. But when it was time that the venom should have taken its course and he was unhurt, they then start to reason, well, this man must be a god or a messenger of the gods. But notice there's something that the natives are testifying there's a deep-seated understanding in the heart of all men that wrongdoers are worthy of judgment. Now, in our corrupted and confused world, men may disagree over exactly what wrongdoing is and specifics and so on, but there's an understanding that where there is wrongdoing, there should be some judgment. However, the bold sinner as it were, shakes that off and says, what's the big deal? Here's the big deal. The guilt that has been brought to pass is a guilt before holy God. And this, of course, is an issue that then puts before us a reality that neither you nor I can fix. So you think for a moment, you know, parents sometimes have to face this fact. Their children, they go and do something. Perhaps they, you know... uh, break a neighbor's window or something of that sort. And so then the child goes with the parent and goes next door and says, you know, I've broken your window. We'll take care of it. We'll pay it and so on. It's within the power of the parent to repay. Or perhaps an adult gets in an accident. It's his fault. He has to pay up and all these things. It's within his power to repay it. But here's the problem. The guilt that has been contracted by our sin against God, is a debt that neither you nor I can ever repay because it is committed against that holy God who is worthy of infinite praise and adoration and delight and obedience. And so think of this for a moment. The fact of hell is a testimony of the infinite and endless obedience that men owe to God. That one infraction against God is not uh, overpaid, as it were, by punishment, but it demands just punishment forever. That's what our sins deserve. Our sins cry out to God never cease judging me because I had the audacity to lift up my heart against the Almighty, who is only good, who is only blessed who is only right and is only wise. Oh, what wickedness is mine. Well, that's true of an unbeliever, but isn't it striking that here is a believer asking for pardon? Some have indeed dabbled in this notion that there is no need for the believer to be pardoned because in Christ they've been pardoned of past and present and future sins, well, the fact is there is a redemption for the believer that transcends time. But it's not true that the believer has no need to go to Christ and profess and confess his sins. It's instructive in simplicity. We don't even need to go deep into the theology. But you can see this in John's epistle when he says, if any man sin, what are we to do? We're not to say, well, remember, you're justified. No big deal. He doesn't say, remember, you've been pardoned. Don't worry about it. Tell your conscience, cast that off. Don't worry about it. You're accepted. No, he says, confess your sin. Go to God and say, I deserve to be punished. I deserve to be judged. But the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. Pardon me. This doesn't mean that every act of sin since our Uh, acceptance in Christ by faith, by grace through faith, is now going to risk, as it were, eternal and endless punishment. David was not in risk of that. David realized that he had judgment to come of affliction and sorrows and that his own conscience was now uh, disturbed and overwhelmed. Think of this for a moment. In earthly relationships, when you've done something wrong against another, What happens if you're at all conscientious? You're hesitant to go to that person because you've done wrong to them. Your fellowship is disrupted. Your enjoyment of one another is disturbed. You can't go about, as it were, in that peace any longer. You actually have to go to that person and you have to say, I was wrong. The way I spoke to you, the thing that I did or the thing I didn't do that I should have done was wrong. I've sinned. Would you forgive me? Forgiveness is given and the relationship's restored. Well, similarly, the believer comes to God and acknowledges his sin. This is a problem, in other words, even for the believer. Now, we're grateful the believer has the full assurance of pardon, but we ought not to overlook the fact that our daily commissions of sin Our daily omissions of righteousness give a daily need to ask God to forgive us. You can see a little bit of this when Peter comes to Jesus and says, listen, if it is that you're to wash my feet, I want you to wash my whole body because if I have no part in you, well, I want to have all part in you. And he says, listen, Peter, you're already clean by the word spoken to you but you have still need for your feet to be washed. There's something of a lesson there. We have the full acceptance with God, but the daily tracking of our lives calls out for a fresh application of that pardon, for a fresh application to our lives of that which Christ has purchased for us. This leads us to the removal, secondly, of our guilt. And you'll notice basically first that this is, Something that is in God's purview alone. It's not in your scope to bring about the removal of your guilt. Although this is often what our consciences wish to think. And this is often the counsel of Satan. And it's certainly the counsel of the world. And so we use expressions like, you know, he's going to redeem himself. And all of these kinds of things that come to mind. Notice, David throughout is not bargaining with God at all. He here says hide thy face from my sins blot out all mine iniquities If you look at this verse alone you could surround it with all the others but this verse is sufficient itself the only thing David is saying he has contributed is his sin and his iniquities And if ever were to be pardoned that's what we have to acknowledge Listen here's the part that I'm bringing I'm bringing my guilt I'm bringing my sin, I'm bringing my transgressions, I'm bringing my iniquity. That doesn't sound like a very right way to reason if we reason by the standards of this world. So you think about, you see something on, that's posted as for sale, and you think, well, I might want to trade something for that vehicle or whatever it might be. And so you message the person, you get in contact and say, You know, I've got this to perhaps lower the price or perhaps you're trading your car in. And you say, well, here are all the benefits that come from this car. So would you lower the price a couple thousand dollars or whatever else it might be? None of that is shown in the way of Scripture's uh, teaching regarding our salvation. We don't come to God and say, okay, I see that I owe this debt, but if I give you that, will you bring it down a little bit? We come and we say, here it is, all of it. Here's what I'm bringing. I'm bringing you mine iniquities, my sins. That's my part. He puts the whole of it upon God to pardon him. You also notice that the removal of guilt is not the removal not only of a lessened guilt, it's not the removal of an ignored guilt Guilt or an overlooked guilt. It's the request to remove all guilt, all mine iniquities, not just those which are so large in my mind right now, but all those that perhaps I think are little and lesser. I'm not hiding anything from you. Sometimes we have to think through, you know, how am I going to put forth my argument with this person? What are the strong points in their eyes? What are the weak parts in their eyes? How do I counter their objection here? How do I present this argument there and we reason through and we present it not seeking to manipulate but seeking to present the truth in a way that's understood and clearly uh, uh, set forth. With God though, the only argumentation that works is here is all of my filth. Here is all of my sin. Here is all that I've done and I look to you in grace to pardon it all. See, it's in God's purview. You and I have nothing. The scribes and Pharisees were right when they witnessed the miracle of Christ or prior to that, they hear Christ say, your sins are forgiven you. And they say, who can forgive sins? But God only. It's only God who has authority to forgive sins. This is something that we ought to remember. When we've sinned, a priest doesn't have authority to forgive sins. A parent doesn't have authority to forgive sins. A pastor doesn't have authority to forgive sins. Our conscience has no authority to forgive sins. Have you ever heard people say things like, you need to make peace with yourself? You step back and you say, are you kidding me? Make peace with me. I'm not the problem in the sense of, I'm not, I'm not the one who vindicates righteousness. My problem is that I've sinned against God. I can make peace with God by myself. I have need of God making peace for me, this is precisely wherein the removal of guilt is found. Notice, here's my sin. He comes to God, and so he says, "Hide thy face and blot out all mine iniquities." He appeals to God for something that would stand as most presumptuous in any other court. Can you imagine this for a moment, going to a court scene? And there are the charges read out against the defendant, the accused of whatever sins, crimes, etc. it may be. And the defendant with, you know, all of his listening to it, it's a long list, you know, going on and on, steps forward and says, listen, I confess to every single one of those things. And for your sake of clarity, here's all the other stuff I've done. Well, do you plead guilty? I do plead guilty. But I ask, blot them all out. And we would sit back and say, that's pretty bold to say that in the face of a system of law, a court of law. But this is precisely what David is doing. He goes to the judge of all the earth. He confesses all these wickednesses, all these iniquities, corruptions, depravities, all of these transgressions. And he says, here they all are. And my plea is, pardon them, everyone. Brethren, this would, of course, be the height of presumption were it not for the fact that this is the way that God is revealed is the way of pardon. Think of what David leans into earlier when he says in verse 7, purge me with hyssop. He understands because from his childhood up, He has witnessed the sacrifice of lambs and animals. He's witnessed the priest place his hands upon the sacrificial victim and recite all of the the sins of Israel. He's seen again and again the shedding of blood. And he's familiar with God's word, which testifies of a God who pardons freely all of our iniquity. And what we have here is not presumption. But we have here an earnest exercise of faith. You've said, oh God, that you forgive freely. You've said you pardon fully. And so here I come in the exercise of faith. And brethren, it is faith which is needed for this. To gather up all of our iniquity and lay it before the one who has the right to condemn us to hell. And to say, here it is in all of its wickedness, all of its heinousness. And I realize in your sight, it's even worse than it is in my sight. But I come in accordance to your word and I say, with all of this debt I've incurred, with all of these crimes I've committed, with all of this corruption and perversion and twistedness of my soul, here it all is in all of its wickedness. Look away from it. Hide your face from it. Lotted out, by which words David is saying, Pardon it. God's books, as it were, are full of our sins. It's striking that the idea of a legal record is regularly used in the scriptures. And so on the last day, God will read from his record. All of the sins committed. And he'll testify of thoughts that were had. He'll testify of careless words that were spoken. And the record is perfect. There's never an omission. There's never an addition. There's never a misrepresentation. All of it's perfect. And David is, as it were, aware of that. He knows the long list of not only accusations but proven crimes that he's committed. And he is the one who presents them to God. Here are all my wickednesses. Here are all my sins against you. And yet he says, you blot them out. What confidence does he, or for that matter, do we have of such pardon? Well, we saw it in Isaiah 44. I am the God who blotteth out Thy transgressions. You see, it's not David standing forth on a wish. It's not saying, Well, you know, if, if if it doesn't work, it doesn't work, but what else do I have to lean on? It's actually God laying the foundation for us in the sacrificial system. Here are the sins, and yet the blood of the innocent victim is applied to the sins of the guilty person and that guilty person is now pardoned because of the substitute. The same is true in Isaiah of course after David's time when Isaiah is used of the Lord to testify of that substitute whose blood would pardon us that though our sins are uh, amassed and, and wickedly committed against God Yet God has laid the iniquity of us all upon Him. Such that, and think of this language for a moment, it pleased the Lord to bruise Him. Think of what's bound up in that. God's justice is being satisfied upon His Son. But whose sins are being punished? It's not the Son's. It's our sins being punished And so it's a good thing such that God is pleased that his justice is being satisfied. And it's a gracious thing because it's not his justice against us upon us. It's his justice against us upon his son. The substitute, which as we read in Colossians 2, is the blood that was shed upon the cross. When the handwriting, think of that language of ordinances that was against us, Was blotted out having been nailed to the cross what an image it is all of our sins all of our crimes against God thoughts and words and deeds omissions commissions the whole long list is there nailed to the cross with this notion every single sin blotted out forgiven pardoned so that you and I stand no longer guilty. It's not that you and I haven't done the sin. It's that the crime against God has been answered. It's been paid and thus is able to be blotted out. In other words, though this expression is given, blot out all mine iniquities, and it doesn't give much by way of, of context, you already see the notion in verse 7, purge me with hyssop, this plant that would be dipped in the sacrificial blood. And this purging and this blotting out are similar ideas. And so the scriptures in the fuller context testify that the way of blotting out is by the blood of the substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so think for a moment, it's not just you yourself standing in the courtroom because as the word of God testifies we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ the righteous and it's Jesus Christ John says who is the propitiation for our sins and so you can think for a moment there's the courtroom this heavenly, this holy, this spotless, this perfect this most righteous courtroom and our sins are brought up by ourselves before God And we cry out, blot out all my transgressions. And our advocate stands and says, my blood applied to them. I have paid for their sins. And our sins are blotted out. Brethren, there's no little comfort in this. The problem with the world and with many in the church is not that they have made guilt too big. That's what some say, you know, you walk around and you're talking about guilt and this is a big problem. That's not the problem. The problem is not that people make guilt too big. It's that they make pardon too small. It's that they're afraid to see how heinous their sins are because they fear that the pardon purchased from them may not be answerable to the crime which they've committed. But so soon as we realize the wonder of this pardon, the perfection of this atonement, we will not cower to realize and examine and to draw out all of the wickedness of our sins. We will not be cowards before God to lay it all before Him because we are assured by Christ that His blood cleanses us From all sin. So when you hear people say, you know, don't make so much of sin, you make too much of sin, this and that and the other. Well, the real thing that's going on there is even unbeknownst to them, they don't understand the depth and the wonder of the blood of Christ. That if they were to see how heinous their sins were with their meager understanding of their happy, clappy religion, of all of this stuff that they talk about, they would realize they have no foundation of hope. But when it is they see the all-surpassing excellency of the atoning blood of Christ, there's no hesitation to get out the magnifying, uh, magnifying uh, uh, glass and look through all of their soul and to see in the light of God's Word all of the details of their sins. Because then they bring it to God, and think of this for a moment, the joy that comes in knowing that our sins are, are removed, as it were, from God's sight, and that our sins are blotted out by God himself. You see, guilt is no little problem. The record of our wrongs is noted by God. You know, it's a fault of parents when it is that they ignore their children's wrongdoings. Our culture is at fault today when they look past their children's wrongdoings. Now, parents can be wrong in how they respond to those wrongdoings, but we ought to see it's no benefit, it's no maturity for parents to say, well, kids will be kids, teenagers will be teenagers, young adults will be young adults, and really what they're saying is sinners will be sinners. Guilt is no little problem because the guilt that is real is before God. And God is one who doesn't play with sin. But grace is no little solution. Christ's blood is no little consolation. And this is David's understanding. Howsoever great, howsoever many, howsoever heinous my sins are, yet of grace you are the God who blots them all out. You are the God who has given me a Savior whose blood cleanses me from all sins. So, Surely we ought to see that all attempts that we make to balance, as it were, the record of God with our appeals. Well, yeah, I know I did that, but this happened. Well, yeah, I know I said it that way, but he said this. Well, I know that I did that, but they did this. And our culture is this way, and this is how I was raised, and all these other things. You see, all those petitions have no standing before God. But when we come and we lay out our case before him, and what is our case? Here's all my sin. Here's all that I've done. It's inexcusable. I have no argument to defend me from it. How do I plead guilty? But let me add this. You've taught me to plead. Pardon me by the blood of Christ. And so I look to the blood of Christ, which was shed for the remission of sins. And I ask, O God, freely and fully, blot out all mine iniquities. Brethren, when this takes place, it's not just that we've actually dealt with, as it were, our sins by God's dealing with our sins by the blood of Christ. It's actually what deepens our soul's gratitude to the Lord. When we sit in the sort of superficial truisms of religion and even Christianity as it's taught today, when we sort of rest in this, well, I don't want to get my uh, toes too much into the reality of my sin. You know, there's too much there. And when we ignore the wonder of the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all sin, what happens is our souls never grow. Our conformity to God's word stalls. But when it is we deal faithfully with our sins, acknowledging what they are and how so many they are, and we bring them to the fountain which is open for sin and uncleanness, it's then that our souls are being deepened to see the unsearchable love, the immeasurable love of God and Christ Jesus to give us His Son, to cleanse us from all our iniquity with no contribution From ourselves. And when that starts to lodge in our minds. It's then that the praise of heaven begins in our hearts. Worthy is the Lamb of God. Who washes us from all of our sins with his own blood. If you want to grow in the praise of God. We must deal faithfully with our sins before God. We must deal fully with our sins before God. You know, there are people who mock former generations who found it a regular occasion to set aside either a portion of each day and for some a whole day every month for the purpose of examining oneself to look over their hearts and discover more clearly their sins. And they mock and they ridicule and say, you know, this is all meaningless and worthless. The Christian's forgiven. The Christian's justified. The Christian's pardoned. They're making much of nothing. It's already been dealt with. The problem with that is twofold. It's historically inaccurate because this is not what they were doing. It's not like they loved morbid introspection. So I'm just going to look at my sins and look at my sins. Oh, there's my sins. And now I'm looking at my sins. They examine themselves to discover their sins in order to take their sins more fully to Christ, to gain the peace and joy and delight of knowing the pardon of Christ that would then strengthen them to greater watchfulness against sin and greater gratitude to God for his mercies. When it is that a godly people cultivate this uh, examining of themselves to the discovery of their sins, by which then they draw near to God and say, here's my sin, pardon my sin, they actually are growing in the Lord because that which we ourselves detest and bring to Christ for pardon is that which we will more carefully watch against in the future. That is what we will more diligently fight against in the future. And so it's no coincidence that as David progresses through these things, he's asking for the Lord to create a clean heart in him, to renew a right spirit within him, to work within him. But all of that comes first from God's mercy, through God's pardon and purging, unto the praise of God. Verse 15, O Lord, open thou my lips, my mouth shall show forth thy praise. It's a delightful memory for many of us to think upon when we were younger in the church and elderly Christians. And oh, what a sweet thing to see them as it were in the midst of the preaching of the gospel, weeping. And they, with some degree of intimacy, able to share, what a blessed Savior that we have who has washed me from all my sins. Now in our youth, we look at them and say, what have they done? You know, what is it that they're guilty of? We don't know all the details, but they knew. And they knew more fully the delight of a Savior who saves them from all their sins. Is it possible that much in the church suffers because of so little acquaintance with sin? And when there's so little acquaintance with sin, there's so little felt need for the Savior. There's so little felt need for His peace, for His pardon. And then there's so little actual, substantial, life-changing praise that is given to him our lives become sort of compartmentalized into well this is the religious stuff we do at church and the rest of my days are this that they're all moral they're all upstanding and so on but there's not the permeation of the fragrance of Christ because we haven't come to see our absolute need of Christ in all parts of our day at all times Every day that we sin, every day in need of pardon, every day by the blood of Christ cleansed. When these things grip us, brethren, it will not be the morbid introspection that is mocked by many today, but it will be the glad rejoicing and the faithful service that follows the assurance of pardon by the grace of God through the blood of Christ for all of our sins. Would you stand with me for prayer?